They're calling 2020 the year of the SPAC. He says that blank check IPOs have more than doubled in 2020 compared to recent years. At over $16 billion, this will make it one of the largest SPAC mergers in history. Welcome to Connecting the Dots, an original podcast from Jeffries. I'm Shannon Murphy. I'm talking to Jeffries' top investment experts and business leaders to connect the dots and make sense of the biggest trends in capital markets. We'll reach out across the world to understand the deals and transactions shaping the global economy. Today, SPAC Crackle Pop. We're looking at special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs. This year, SPACs have skyrocketed to half of all U.S. IPO volume. They're truly a blockbuster product, and they're making headlines every few days. But why? And how did this happen? To figure that out, we're dedicating our first two episodes to them. Today, everything you always wanted to know about SPACs, but were afraid to ask. Let's start with the basics. What is a SPAC? A SPAC is is basically a vehicle for a company or a group of managers to go public with just uh, proceeds. So it's it's simply uh, an IPO of cash with intention to acquire a company that will ultimately become a U.S.-listed entity. That's Scott Skidmore. He's the head of U.S. equity capital markets here at Jefferies. We'll get back to him in just a minute. But first, we want to break down some of the who's and what's he's talking about here. Then we'll get him to connect the dots for us about why these deals are so popular. We know that SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Who are the players? There's the sponsor, the folks who actually raise the capital to create and fund the SPAC. The investors, those folks that believe in the SPAC management team and allocate capital to the acquisition vehicle. And then there's the company that's going to be acquired. We'll call them the target. The sponsor sets out to create a brand new company, one with no operations or production capacity yet. And they go through the work of taking that company public. But, and this is crucial, they can't use the funds raised for anything except acquiring an actual existing operating company. So now you know what a SPAC is and what it does. Now, let's go back to our equities expert, Scott Skidmore, to find out why the popularity of SPACs has skyrocketed in the last few years. You know, the IPO calendar has always been a robust asset class for investors to look towards. And this is a, it was a mechanism historically for companies to go public, to provide them access to uh, a capital above and beyond what they had access to as a private entity. And the SPAC structure is an interesting approach whereby It's a way for companies that are, you know, perhaps hesitant to approach the IPO calendar or IPO market because whether there's, it's just a daunting approach, they're nervous about getting on the road with uh, investors, they're nervous about perhaps even the business disruption because taking a company public in the traditional route is a very time intensive and laborious effort. And, you know, so again, there's a lot of great private companies out there that have chosen not to go public simply because it just takes too much time. It's, it's too inconvenient. For the right company, a SPAC can be a much more convenient route to accessing public capital. Rather than preparing for several months to go public and really, frankly, having a business disruption, um, a SPAC is a really eloquent and efficient way for a company to merge with a public shell 
that ultimately gets them to the same spot of going public, but without necessarily some of the, the business distractions and the time consumption that a traditional public structure would, would take. Scott says there are other reasons that may make SPACs more appealing than a traditional IPO route. And that has a lot to do with lowering market risk and taking some of the pressure off some of those deadlines that are normally associated with IPOs. You're removing the market forces. You're, you're not at the whims of the volatility of the market. Instead, you're able to establish valuation um, in a very thoughtful period of time. And whether or not you're, you're not dependent upon how the market trades for those eight days of which you're on the road in a traditional way. Instead, you know, you're coming up with a valuation. It's a very thoughtful time. You can take you know, a week, you can take three weeks, you can take four weeks to negotiate the fair value of the company. And then you go to investors with a, a spot price in hand for them to determine whether or not it's something you want to participate in or not. I think the whole point of the SPAC is you're removing you know, market forces, shaping valuation in a very small and tight, discrete period of time. SPACs have been around for a long time, but they haven't always been this popular. To find out what's changed, I spoke with Tina Pappas, a managing director in equities and capital markets for Jefferies. They've essentially been a increasing part of the capital markets every year. They're a larger share of the IPO market. This year in 2020, they're approaching 50% of the IPO market. Last year, they were 30%. And it's for a few reasons, but one of the key drivers is that the quality of the teams sponsoring SPACs continues to to improve and some of the best practices around business combinations um, have now been, you know, pretty well entrenched. And there's a bit of a virtuous cycle with these better and better teams bringing back higher quality companies that get investors, you know, interested and excited about investing in the in the target companies. And out of that come successful business combinations that trade well. And then that then in turn fuels the demand for additional SPACs, either behind the same teams, repeat SPAC issuers, or just, you know, people with a profile and and track record and deal flow in a space. SPACs used to work differently. In their early incarnations, they were structured in a way that resulted in something called SPAC mailing. But these things were changed years ago. It's been an evolution. It started back 10 years ago when I actually had made some changes to the structure to allow it to be a better vehicle to transact with. So, um, And that was basically a, a change where the SPAC shareholder vote was separated from the redemptions. And before that, the SPAC shareholders would sometimes try to influence the vote. And the negative selection came from companies being really concerned about getting blackmailed or spackmailed by shareholders in, in trying to block their transactions. And it's taken a long time to shake that perception. But SPACs don't work that way anymore. And they haven't for many years. So the concern about spackmailing no longer exists. And every time another company successfully goes public with a SPAC, the more confidence investors can gain in the process. The the fact that there have been some very well-known companies that successfully were able to go public with a SPAC backed by 
incredible teams has given investors confidence the last couple of years, again, with increasing frequency to participate. Tina says that in the past decade, new best practices around how SPACs operate have been evolving, and it's making them even more compelling to many investors. Today, almost all SPAC transactions have either a pipe transaction, a pipe that's raised uh, from fundamental investors that basically anchor the business combination. And could you tell us what a pipe transaction is or pipe funding? That is when the business combination is identified, but before, there's usually an LOI at that point, but before the the business combination is announced, the SPAC and the target company would uh, take investors over the wall and they would raise either incremental capital to support the business combination and help fund the business combination And most of these investors are well-recognized investors that kind of endorse the deal. And so by the time that a business combination is announced, it's usually been already vetted with investors. And when you follow those best practices, that sort of playbook for executing a, a business combination correctly, and again, that's very, very different with how deals, you know, got done how SPAC business combinations were done even just a few years ago. We'll hear from Tina again a bit later. Back to Scott for a moment. He says that these days, SPACs are attracting new types of investors. Historically, some of the the SPAC investors had been event-driven investors or very technical investors. And as this, this SPAC market has matured, what you've seen is a lot of the long onlys, whether it's pension funds, whether it's mutual funds, or even really you know, high quality hedge funds that have historically played the IPO calendar, whereby they can actually take a fundamental approach to assessing fair value. They've looked at the SPAC market as a way, as long as the SPAC has an, an industry angle to it, there's no question that the actual pool of institutionals has grown dramatically over the past couple of years. Now, Scott tells me more and more of these institutional investors are looking at the sector experience and expertise of the people backing this generation of SPACs. And he says they really want to lean into this market specialization. And so as long as the SPAC has an industry focus, we're definitely seeing a much larger pool of investors focusing on the SPAC product. We've not necessarily seen that as much part of of the general SPACs, where it's kind of we can buy anything in any industry. So what you really want to do is, is if you're looking to broaden out that institutional shareholder base for the SPAC IPO, to be able to have a more focused approach, which is typically industry focused. That sector by sector focus isn't just helping one-off deals either. Scott says it's building the long-term relationships between all the players involved. So, you know, being able to go to, for example, a law, a very multi-strat mutual fund, you know, the key is to be able to identify that portfolio manager that has an expertise in that sector. And if you're able to do that, and then, you know, as the, the you know, relationship develops between the investor as well as the SPAC management team and that institutional investor that has, let's say, a consumer focus, as long as they're confident that that management team is going to be able to um, identify a company in a unique way and make a very smart uh, and accretive acquisition, 
you know, we've definitely seen, you know, the, those long only investors participate in the SPAC IPO calendar. So we're starting to connect the dots here on what a SPAC is and why we're hearing so much about them these days. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the sponsor side of the deal. What are some of the things that sponsors need to think about when they're forming a SPAC? Here's Tina again. Well, the most important thing they should be thinking about is the target companies that they're going to pursue and being really honest with themselves about the opportunity, their deal flow, their access to those companies. And ideally, you want to have proprietary relationships with companies that would be excited with partnering with you to to take their business public and having a good thesis about what sectors you're going to focus on, or if you're an industry-focused or dedicated SPAC, understanding where the actionable opportunities are going to come from, because even though you generally have two years to close a business combination, investors would love it if you announced your deal in the first six to 12 months. And in order to do that, you're going to need to have a, a short list at least of, of actionable targets that you can have some reason to uniquely transact with you versus any other SPAC that, that they could you know talk to. And so today, just given the volume of issuance, you want to have a differentiated story. So for Tina, the key is what differentiates you as a potential SPAC sponsor. You need to show why you're the right fit for investors and for the potential target, especially because so many of these deals are happening right now. And speaking about the volume of these transactions, my other big question for Tina was, what's the ceiling for the SPAC market? I don't think there's a ceiling necessarily, but I do think that the market has expanded. There are, there are a lot more investors focused and, and engaged in the SPAC product than ever before. And so that's that's good news for, for SPAC IPOs. And that includes some of the fundamental investors, the more sort of long onlys, even some of the mutual funds are now looking at and, and in many cases participating in SPAC IPOs where they never have before. So that's all great news. But I think just overall, investors are being more selective in the deals that they're participating in. So again, going back to the point about making sure that you have sort of a differentiated story, a strong team and, um, you know, unique proprietary deal flow. Those are all really important because investors can afford to be choosy and they are being choosier. So we've heard about why investors are becoming more and more interested in forming a SPAC. But what about the other side? What does a SPAC have to offer a company? And how does a company know which SPAC they should do a deal with? We're going to get a deep dive into that side of things next week. But first, here's my colleague Scott Skidmore again to give us some of the basics. So if I'm representing a company and I'm I'm contemplating whether or not a SPAC combination makes sense, I I do believe that having that SPAC to have uh, some history with the sector of which I'm representing in terms of of the target company is is critical. If a, a SPAC has a management team or a board of directors that can help me grow and and come up with even better ideas how to manage this business, I do believe that's a a edge when it comes to a SPAC acquiring a target. 
So for the target company, Scott says merging with a SPAC means you can also gain and combine your expertise and experience. That's how companies go from good to great. And so I absolutely believe that the quality of the SPAC management team and the type of of experience they've had is a huge selling point when you're talking about merging um, with a, a potential target. So if I was a target, there's no question that I would want somebody that has expertise in my sector. There's no question that I would be looking for additional ways to grow and build my company and to leverage the bright minds that perhaps they've done that in the past. So I think this could be viewed not necessarily just as a, an acquisition, but rather as a partnership. Are there any sectors that are a particularly good fit? Biotech, for example, has been making a lot of headlines in the SPAC space. I, I think it really applies across all industries, right? I mean, I think that, as you mentioned, biotech, that's a very good one. Technology, another really good one. So you know, those two sectors alone have been a pretty significant component of the traditional IPO calendar. So keep in mind that the SPAC is simply a vehicle to take a company public. And so a SPAC is not designed, however, to buy a company that's not going to be appreciated in the public markets. The the whole design of a SPAC is to mirror the IPO market, mirror what the market wants, making sure that the public markets uh, will find that particular sector interesting. Okay, so we've heard about what SPACs are, how they're used, and why they might be appealing to investors and to private companies wanting to access public capital. I asked both Tina and Scott to connect the dots for us on why SPACs have become such a dominant headline this year. Tina's up first. Companies and investors have finally realized that this is probably a better way to go public for a lot of companies than a traditional IPO, whether it's the sponsorship of the SPAC team for public investors, or whether it's just the fact that you can provide things like projections uh, that you don't have in, 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 the, uh, in the IPO context. You don't have the benefit of using projections in, in an IPO context. Um, I think companies and, and shareholders of businesses are realizing that in many cases, it's a, a better mousetrap for taking a, a business public than a traditional IPO. And Scott has the final word. I think the, the final observation is the SPAC market should be always viewed or should be viewed as a way for a company to go public. And I do believe that we should maintain the same level at the same bar that that we would maintain taking company public. And so this is not a format or this is not an avenue to take a company that um, is perhaps too small for the market to market. This is a way for a company, a really good company to get access to, to public capital. And I do believe that as, as we all know, the companies that are publicly traded, many of them have very, very long uh, lives on, on a publicly traded exchange. And genuinely believe that good companies that want access to public currency, that want to be public, that have the aspirations to grow, should be publicly traded. And a SPAC is just, you know, one additional avenue to to be able to go public. I'm Shannon Murphy. You've been listening to Connecting the Dots, an original podcast from Jeffries. 
Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Next time, more SPAC talk. Don't miss our episode all about what it's like for a company going public through a SPAC, what that process entails, and why it's increasingly top of mind for some of the most forward-looking business leaders and fastest-growing companies today. Important information and additional disclaimers are available at jeffries.com. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Jeffries entity to the audience. It's not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or investment. This podcast is being provided strictly for informational purposes only. Any opinion or estimates constitute our best judgment as of the date of the podcast and are subject to change without notice. The information upon which this podcast is based was obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified and should not be relied upon as an accurate representation of future events. No responsibility is accepted and no representation, undertaking, or warranty is made or given, in either case expressly or impliedly, by Jeffries as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of the information contained herein, or as to the reasonableness of any assumptions on which any of the same is based. Any views or opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individuals identified. Accordingly, neither Jeffries nor any of its officers, directors, employees, or representatives will be liable for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person resulting from the use of the information contained herein, or for any opinions expressed by any such person, or any errors, omissions, or misstatements made by any of them. Jeffries is not an advisor as to legal, tax, accounting, or regulatory matters in any jurisdiction and is not providing advice related to such matters. Listeners of this podcast should take their own independent advice with respect to matters discussed.